Our scripture this morning comes from Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 31. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all of the people of Israel that by the name of Christ Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, and against his anointed. For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats, 
and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is God's word. Amen, thank you, Susan. Good morning. Uh, Good to see so many of you this morning. My name is Drew Bennett, one of the pastors here at Redeemer City. We continue this morning in a series in the book of Acts uh, where we're trying to come up with a working theology of the Spirit for us as a church. You know, today, as we've said, it's Pentecost Sunday, and it's, uh, it's interesting to me that it goes unnoticed, at least compared to Christmas, which I think has much to do with what Christianity has become these days, and by that I mean, in some cases, far too much sentimentality and not near enough supernatural power for the mission. We celebrate Christmas with great gusto and uh, lots of preparedness and and fanfare, and then Pentecost kind of comes and goes, and we don't even um, notice it much. And so I think we, we have some repenting to do there. We have some really, some revisioning, recasting of what it means to to be a, a follower of the Lord Jesus who is part of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And that's what, this, that's what this book of Acts is going to help us do. And so let me just by way of introduction kind of bring us up to speed with what some of the things we've been saying. Uh, we've said very clearly that if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit. That's a, that's a basic theological tenet of our faith. If your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, then by virtue of your new birth in Him, you have the Spirit of God. And if you have the Spirit, you have all of Him. You're not an empty cup that needs to be filled. You're not a leaky tire, which is the way one of my friends put it. You're not a leaky tire that, that has a hole in it, and, and you, know, you need to run back to church every Sunday to get filled back up so that you have enough air in the tire to make it through the rest of the week until you can come back the next Sunday. All right? that's, not, that's not true of us. I've been arrested uh, over the past few weeks or so by the phrase in the first chapter of John's Gospel to stop me in my tracks again this week as I read it where John is meditating on, on the, the incarnation of Christ there in the prologue of the Gospel. And in verse 16, he just has this phrase. He says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. So God is full and overflowing with love, generosity, joy, power, and life. And when you become a Christian, his fullness comes into your life. And, it's, and the only way I know to describe it to you is to use a picture. You know, many of us grew up in Florida. And so, you know, in the summertime in Florida, you go to the beach. And particularly on the Atlantic side, not so much on the, on the, um, the West Coast with the, with the Gulf. But, you know, if you're, if you're, you know, venturing out into the water there and it may be a particularly wavy, choppy day, the wind's blowing or whatever the case might be, you know, there's always that treacherous, and my mom would get really nervous, there's that treacherous part, you know, if you, go, if you go a little ways out, it's not a big deal because the waves are crashing far out in front of you, and by the time they reach you, they've kind of lost their power and fizzed out. And then, of course, once you get beyond the, the, the breaking point, you're okay too because you can just kind of ride with the waves, but there's that, that little bit of the spot there, you know what I'm talking about, where you get right to the place where the waves are just crashing right in the same place, and you've got to figure out how to get on beyond them, and, you know, and eventually, as a little kid, you know, you're out there and something happens and, you know, eventually you get to that spot and a wave is stronger than you think and it comes, like, breaks down right upon you and kind of you do a backflip or whatever. And you, do you know this? Anybody else have this experience? And you kind of finally find your feet and, you know, of course, we're, you know, you're wiping the salt water out of your eyes and you're trying to open your eyes and figure out where, where you are and then what happens is, is, is the moment you do that, what happens? 
Another way. See, there's the Floridians in the room. And then another wave comes crashing down, and you kind of stagger and have to catch your, fo- your, your footing and get yourself just in time for another, and it's, uh, it's a little bit scary and disorienting. Um, but I want to say to you, um, it's a really great picture, I think, of what John 1, 16 is saying. If you're a Christian on your very worst day, at your lowest point, when you feel the most empty and alone and afraid, there is still wave upon wave of grace crashing down upon you from the, over, from the fullness of the God of the universe overflowing into your life. That's the truth. Grace after grace after grace after grace until it's suffocating you. Now that, that is the baseline of Christian experience. What I want to say to you this morning is that's as bad as it ever gets. Isn't that good news? That's really, really good news. That's as bad as it ever gets. And so we sing the song, Jesus on my cross have taken, all to leave and follow thee. And there's the line in that song that says, soul, then know thy full salvation, rise or sin and fear and care. In other words, the hymn writer there is describing this power to overcome your circumstances and live uh, with joy and, and fullness and power. And, you know, and, it, and it prompts you to ask, but how? How do I do that? How does that happen? And then the next line of the song says, think what spirit dwells within thee. In other words, the hymn writer is saying, you, you have power and resources within you that you're not accessing, that you've forgotten about. Don't live as if there's anything other than grace after grace after grace, wave after wave after wave, because that's what the Bible means when it talks about quenching the spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5, 7, uh, 19. Martin Lloyd-Jones believed that this was the greatest danger for the modern evangelical church, and he put it this way. This is from his words in a book on, on the Spirit's work. He says, there is, excuse me, he says, this is no age to advocate restraint. <laughs> he says, the church does not need to be restrained. The church needs to be aroused, to be awakened, to be filled with the spirit of glory, for she is failing the modern world. And so, on the one hand, we need to begin to live from the reality of our spiritual abundance in Christ and not the unreality of scarcity and need. You're not an empty cup. If you're here and your faith is in Jesus, you're not an empty cup. You with me? That's really true. It doesn't feel that way sometimes. But that's the reality. You're not an empty cup. That's the first thing. But there's a second thing, and this is where it gets a little uncomfortable for types like me anyway. And it's what the book of Acts has been teaching us so far. I said a few weeks ago, uh, and people said it was helpful, and so I thought I would say it again, uh, because that's what pastors do, you know. And I said, if you, uh, if you fill an empty cup, then what you have is what? You have a full cup. If, you, if there's a cup that's empty and you fill it, then it's full. But if you have an already full cup and you fill it, then what is it? It's an overflowing cup. And so you read here, you read here about the Spirit being poured out. The Spirit, they're, they're filled with the Spirit. Over and over again in Acts, they're filled with the Spirit. It's what happens here in Acts 2, and, and, and it's what happens again in this text in Acts 4. And so it's something that keeps happening to, to the church as they journey through this, this book of, of Acts. At the end of John's Gospel, there's a scene where Jesus gathers his disciples to himself, and he commissions them. And in the scene, he breathes on them. And he says, this is John 20, 22, receive the Holy Spirit. And the point there is that they already had the Spirit before Acts 2. There in John 20, Jesus, you know, kind of formally breathes the Spirit onto them. The Spirit means, the word means breath. He 
he breathes and says, receive the Holy Spirit. They're already filled with the Spirit. And so in Acts 2, and then here again in Acts 4, the Spirit comes down upon the already full church. And they begin to overflow with spiritual power. And that's what we mean when we've used this word revival. Revival is when your already full cup gets filled again and you begin to overflow. Let me say that again. Revival is the spiritual reality when your already full cup gets filled again and you begin to overflow. The Bible says that we should seek for this. We should pray for this. We should desire it. If you're like me, if you're part of the it's no longer like this crowd that I described a couple of weeks ago like me, it probably stretches you. I think that's a really good thing. I think this book, we're not handling this book right if it doesn't stretch us because I, I agree with Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's not time for restraint. But here's the thing. We seek and pray for revival, but only for the sake of mission, for the sake of ministry outside the church. Okay? Everywhere in Acts, when God pours out the Spirit, it's for the sake of mission. It's for the sake of the gospel going out. And I think that really challenges the more charismatic elements in evangelicalism, where ecstatic spiritual experience seems to be an end and not a means to an end. So there's balance here, see? Okay? There's balance. So there's a very specific purpose in all that we see happening here to these people, and it's to increase mission. Revival is always new power for mission. That's what we see. We see the church here with John and Peter moving out on, on mission, and what we, what we find is that there's one defining characteristic as they go. If you want to know what it looks like when your already full cup gets filled again and you start to overflow, there's one defining characteristic, and it happens, we, we, we're, it, it is given to us three times here in Acts chapter 4, and it's just the word boldness. You know what an already full cup being filled to overflowing looks like? It looks like boldness. So you see in verse 13, then again in verse 29, and verse 31 is this idea of boldness. Peter exhibits boldness. Uh, the church prays for boldness. God grants it to them. They begin to minister in boldness in verse 31. So if you, if you ever are reading a passage of Scripture and this, something like that keeps coming up, that means it's the theme. It's what Luke wants us to really see here in Luke, and excuse me, in Acts 4, is the boldness of these people as they are overflowing with gospel proclamation to the world that, that they've been sent on mission to. And so that's our, that's our topic for this morning. What is this boldness? But, well, here's what we're actually going to do. Three points to the sermon this morning. We want to first talk about why we need boldness like we see here. Why is it so important? Why do we why do we sitting in this room need the kind of boldness that these guys had? Why did they need it? But secondly, what is it? Let's make sure we know for sure what we're talking about here this morning. And then lastly, of course, how can we get it? How can you find boldness like you see from these two men here? So what, why we need it? What is it? And how can we get this boldness? Just those three points. Okay, let's, let's just walk together through Acts 4 a little bit. Uh, first, why do we need boldness like we see here? And the answer to that question is that our culture is becoming more and more like the culture the first Christians had to navigate. It's very interesting, isn't it? That for the first time, or more, probably more so than in the last 1,700 years, our culture is in many ways reverting back to some very stark similarities uh, with the culture that the gospel is beginning uh, to, you know, beginning to invade and pervade here in Acts and in the New Testament scriptures, which that should encourage us, right? I mean, so there's lots of parallels where we see the gospel being very um, successful given the cultural context that it was in. We are now coming back into a very similar cultural context. We live in a pluralistic society that is increasingly hostile to our faith. Now, by pluralistic, that's a big word. What do we mean? 
we mean lots of different cultures, lots of different religions, lots of different ideologies and ideas, and all of them living in close proximity to one another so that they're constantly, the nice way to say it would be they're constantly rubbing up against one another. The not-so-nice thing, way to say is they're constantly kind of clashing into one another. So Christianity from the beginning made universal claims, and this was the problem. It's what got Peter and John into so much trouble. So look at their message in, in verse 12 of chapter 4. Look what they, they're going around, and here's the substance of what they're preaching. They're saying, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name other than Jesus in heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That is a very offensive statement. It was offensive in those days. It's offensive in our day, and yet it is the basic message of Christianity. It takes a tremendous amount of courage to say things like that, both then and now, and so we need boldness. Now, the Roman world, let's get into this a little bit, was officially, and you know, officially, politically, pluralistic. The Romans allowed the people they conquered to continue worshiping their own gods as long as they also, alongside of whatever their, you know, particular private worship was, as long as they worshiped the emperor too. They said, you know, you can believe whatever you want to as long as you don't believe anything exclusively. So privately, you could, you could go to whatever temple, whatever church, whatever place you wanted to go, as long as publicly, you could stand in the public forum and say, Kaiser Kurios, which means Caesar is Lord. That was, the, that was the statement that you were expected to make in Roman society. So you can see the irony. You know, if you worship your private God, but publicly you worship Caesar, then you can't then you can't be claiming that your God is supreme to Caesar. You're putting them on the same level, or at least you're saying, you know, they're one alongside of one another. And this created a problem for the early Christians because by conscience they couldn't do this. So they refused to publicly say Kaiser Kurios. Instead, the, the public political statement of the early church became a refutation of that. They actually were known for saying Christos Kurios. Christ is Lord. Because they believed that Jesus, not Caesar, was the true God. They believed that Jesus and Caesar were not side by side. They believed Jesus was the true Lord. But it took an incredible amount of courage to do this because it meant what you see here. It's what got these men thrown in jail. And it's what got Christians throughout the first two or three centuries of the church beheaded and crucified and burned at the stake and so forth. Now we, we also live in a pluralistic society. It's really headed that direction very fast. The exclusive claims of Christianity get us into just as much trouble with the powers that be today as they did back then. And so Christianity is viewed as narrow and even dangerous. You'll hear people say things like this. So there's an enormous amount of pressure for us to suppress any truth claims, to instead affirm that all religions are equally valid, that none is more right or more true than any other. We, we live in an age of tolerance with a capital T. And just like in the first century, you're free in our culture to believe whatever you want to, as long as you don't believe it exclusively. But here's the thing, there's huge problems with this, okay? And this is what I want to help us see this morning. There are huge problems, huge inconsistencies, in fact, and ironies in this idea of tolerance that have to be exposed. And the similarities between our culture and this one help us do this, because this is not a modern problem. I mean, do you realize Christianity has not just of late gone out of fashion? For the first 300 years of the church, Christians were persecuted and killed for the same reasons the culture is now turning on Christians today. In fact, we've always done our best work in situations like this. 
And that's good news. I mean, for one thing, for one thing, the culture says it's arrogant to say that Jesus is the only way, that Jesus is the only truth, which is, of course, what he said in John 14, 6, right? I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. You can't say that, the culture says, okay? We have a big problem. And here's the big problem. None of the other religious teachers that the world has ever known made claims like this. Therefore, there is no way to believe in Jesus as if he is just the same as others. He might be right. He might be wrong. But you can't put him on the same level as Buddha or Muhammad or any of the other spiritual teachers the world has known. Either he is not the son of God, in which case he is inferior to the other teachers because at least they had the common sense not to make such outlandish claims about themselves. Or he, in fact, is who he says he is, in which case he is vastly superior to all the others. Either he was not raised from the dead and we have been duped by 2,000 years of lies and cover-ups, or he was raised from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and in that case, he is, in fact, the only name under heaven by which we must be saved. Those are the only options. Those are the only options. See, we're, we're, being, we're being forced into a corner, but those are the only options. There's another irony. There's another problem. And it's just, how could all religions be equally valid in the first place? Well, it's only possible if, A, there is no God, or if, B, there is a God, but he is so impersonal, he's so other, that you can't know him, and he doesn't really care what you believe anyway. He's much like the force of the Star Wars movies and not a community of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But when somebody says, you know, all religions should be accepted and, um, as equal, what they're really saying is, is my view of God is superior to your view of God, and you should adopt my view and abandon your view. But what's that? Do you see that? What's that? That's a truth claim. And here you see the irony. To say there's no such thing as a universal truth claim is a truth claim. To say that all religions are the same is just as exclusive and narrow as saying that Jesus is the only name under heaven by which we must be saved. And so this is the irony of, of the tolerance movement in our culture. The tolerance movement is tolerant of everything except intolerance, which means it's not tolerant at all. Everybody's making exclusive truth claims. I mean, I know we would like to think of ourselves in our culture as a forum for free exchange of ideas without judgment and so forth, but in reality, we are living in a, in a constant clash of truth claims. And so the solution... The solution for all of this means that we, is not that we tone down the universal truth claims about Christianity. I, man, wouldn't you? I would love to do that. I mean, I, people would like me more if I did that. I wouldn't have to worry about, you know, persecution or any of that other kind of stuff. Man, that'd be a lot. That'd be a lot easier. I mean, surely it's a temptation, but it doesn't work. The solution, rather, is that we find the courage and the boldness of Peter and John. I mean, our 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 society would love for for us to, you know, that. You know, the society defines love in a particular way. It says love is setting aside all truth claims, telling everybody it's okay, whatever, you know, whatever they believe and so forth. But the Bible says that love is insisting on truth, but with patience and gentleness and giving people the room and the freedom to question, to struggle, and these sorts of things. That's really what love is. And as we see here in Acts 4, that when, when Peter and John go through this experience with, with, the, with the leaders that they do and the boldness that they show, that the church is inspired by their boldness, 
And so we should be too. And so they pray down at the very end there. They, they, they are just really taken aback by this, and they begin to pray, Oh, Lord, grant your servants to consp- continue to speak your word with all boldness, verse 29. That should be our prayer too. We don't need to water down the truth claims of Christianity. We need to find the courage of Peter and John, given the culture that we live in. You see, here's the thing. We're in a cultural moment where, where some of this is starting, some of the, the anarchy and the chaos that has been introduced by the rejection of any universal absolute you know, truth. What happens when you throw absolute truth out is, is morality itself becomes subjective. And for some reason, we th- you know, we're okay with the kind of the notion that there's no authoritative absolute truth, but when you start messing with the objectivity of morality, people get really nervous. And it's, 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 what it's done is it's created this, this really, really um, difficult set of affairs that we find ourselves in, and we really are moving into a cultural moment where people realize that we've thrown out the idea of absolute truth, but we need moral absolutes. We know we need moral absolutes. It can't be as chaotic as it would be otherwise. We need those moral absolutes, but the problem is, is we have nowhere to go to find them except back to Christianity. What a great opportunity. What a great opportunity we have. So we need boldness. Okay, I mean, let's get a little bit further into this. So we have to understand from the text also what this boldness is so we can pray that God would do it in us. So Christianity uniquely offers, if you're here and you're not a Christian, what I want you to see is the beauty of what Christianity can do in a life. Christianity uniquely offers to make us bold, but not in an ugly way. So much of what goes as boldness really is just ugly, but instead supernaturally bold, what I'm going to call beautifully bold, and it's what you see here uh, in Peter and John. This is not temperamental boldness, okay? There There are some people who are constitutionally more aggressive. I really envy those people because it's not me. They, they don't shy away from confrontation like I do. And now everybody's looking at one another going, yeah, that's, you know, that's you. I mean, I really do. I, really, I wish that I could be more like this, but not these men. See, that's not these men. Remember in Acts 1, what are they doing? They're, they're hiding. They're scared to death. They're afraid that the authorities are going to come and nab them. No, this is a picture of a transformed person. What you see in Peter and, Jane, and John here, this is, these, are, these are men becoming something they were not before. You get that? They've become something they were not before. So this is not temperamental boldness. This is not just naturally arising out of their personality. And what I want to say to you is there's a difference between boldness and brashness. Aristotle actually taught that it's possible, possible to be too brave. So brashness is not bravery. It lacks true courage because... Uh, you know what I mean by brashness, just kind of this force of personality that comes out of somebody sometimes? Uh, it, it's a power play. It's a show of force, uh, like an animal that puffs itself up to intimidate whatever's coming after it. The Bible actually warns against this. For, for example, uh, 2 Timothy 2, uh, you know, Paul writes to Timothy, don't be quarrelsome. Don't get into arguments. Don't like to argue with people, but be kind, teaching people, patiently enduring evil, Correcting your opponents with gentleness. That's an important verse, I really think, that we, we shouldn't. We're under divine mandate not to be argumentative and overly confrontational, but instead words like kind, patient, gentle should characterize us. Even our interactions with people that disagree with us as we're arguing and contending for the faith, there's a boldness that is really brashness. That's not what you see from these men, but nor is this a moralistic boldness either. Do you know what I mean by that? Outside of the gospel, your identity, every identity, is based upon 
works, and because of that, it's based upon relative status. Do you know what I mean by this? Uh, let me give you an example. It's, it's all-star baseball season, which, man, we did for years and years and years, and now we don't do it anymore, and so I'm sad about that, and my kids are growing up, and that's a hard thing, but, I, you know, we, for so many years, we did, we did all-star baseball, and, and it would always go like this. There would be a kid who was the best kid on the team for the rec ball season. He played shortstop all year. Now he's on the all-star team, but the problem is, is now the all-star team is made up of what? It's made up of all the good t- kids from all the different teams, and so you have this kid who's been playing shortstop, and now he's playing right field. And you can just watch this happen. He goes from being full of confidence to all of a sudden being unsure of himself, and it affects the way he plays. He, he just begins to fall apart. He goes from feeling good about himself to feeling bad about himself. Why? Because it wasn't being good that made him feel good about himself. It was being better than everybody else on the team that made him feel good about himself. You see this? He was hitting third, now he's hitting ninth in the lineup and he can't recover and he loses all of his confidence. This is what happens. I mean, it's just a, it's a silly story, but it's what happens to every single one of us. That we all, every one of us gets an identity through works. And it's always relative. There are always some people that you feel superior to and then there are other people that you feel inferior to. And that's why it's such a roller coaster ride, at least for me, literally from moment to moment sometimes. I mean, you can imagine it. Something like this, if you're in a classroom and the teacher was passing out the graded tests in class and the girl sitting in front of you, you peek over her shoulder because, of course, you want to know not only what you get, but it helps you to know what everybody else in the class got too, right? Anybody else had that, right? So you kind of peek over the shoulder, oh, she got a C. (laughs) And then you get your test, and it's a B plus. And for that brief moment, you're elated and full of pride. You're the best student in the class. And then in the next moment, the boy behind you gets his test, and you turn around, and he shows it to you, and it's an A. And literally, now you're deflated. And it really is. It really can be that moment to moment. It really can. And the lesson is there's a boldness that comes from feeling superior to other people. I mean, let's be honest, it's easy to be bold with those who report to you at work. It's a lot harder to be bold to your boss, isn't it? (laughs) It's easy to be confident when you're the shortstop on the rec ball team, the best player on the team, but what about when you're a bench player on the travel ball team? So so much of what passes for boldness is not boldness at all, it's just self-righteousness. But there's a difference, see, between being bold, as Peter and John are here, and being arrogant they're not the same and that's why I want to labor this point because so much of the boldness and witness that I think you see from Christians in our culture is smug and condescending as if to be bold requires you to yell at people and tell them how stupid they are because you've got the truth and they don't please listen see how this works if your identity is based upon works and if you've got the truth then you automatically feel superior to everybody else who doesn't have the same truth as you. Should I say that again? See, if, where, where is it in my notes? If your identity is based upon works, and you've got, the, in other words, if your identity, if, if, if you're feeling good about yourself is based upon you being right, then of course for you to be right, somebody has to be wrong. And if your identity is based upon works and you've got the truth, then it's almost automatically you feel superior to everybody else who doesn't have the same truth as you. And that's so much of the truth-telling that Christians do. It's not even Christian. And it isn't very effective. 
And all it does is incite people, and it's ugly. Because in postmodernism, every truth claim is a power play. It's a way of gaining power over people and coercing them and looking down your nose at them. As Voldemort says in the first Harry Potter movie, there is no good and evil, there's only power in those too weak to seek it. You see, only Christianity can bring people to the truth and it not cause them to feel superior to the people who don't have that same truth. Only Christianity can do that. And the legacy of Christianity is a boldness that is beautiful, that is compelling to the culture around it because it is kind and patient and gentle and it bears with people and it doesn't get upset when people disagree and it allows people room to question and to be slow. And it's exactly what you see in our passage. The religious leaders here are shocked, look at verse 13, because Peter and John were uneducated common men. And yet, they're, they're, they're blown away because these uneducated common men have such boldness. I mean, this was something absolutely unknown to this culture. They were bold, but their boldness didn't come from feeling superior to others. It didn't come from strength of personality. These were simple, uneducated men, and yet they were, they were unbelievably bold. And those words mean they weren't trained or credentialed. So you better not come to me and say, I've not been to seminary like you, so I can't tell people about Jesus. These were the, these were the unprofessionals. It's us professional people that get it wrong most of the times, not you guys. Let's be honest. These, these words mean they were not trained or credentialed, and yet there's no hint of them being intimidated. See, they, they were bold. They weren't bold because they felt superior. This was a situation where they were outmatched and outnumbered. They're up against rulers and leaders that were superior to them in every way. I'm sure they were afraid. They didn't have the answers that they would need in the moment, but they didn't get overly self-conscious. The deck was stacked against them, but they didn't clam up. There's something supernatural in them here. Their identity has been radically reoriented by God's grace and to God's grace. See, the reason that Christianity can bring people to the truth and not cause them to feel superior to people who don't share the same truth is because of the truth Christianity brings. What do I mean? The truth of Christianity is that we're saved by grace, not by works, not by rightness. And that's why you can't feel superior in your rightness towards people who are wrong. You're not saved by goodness, so you can't think you're better than anybody else. There's no one right. There's no one good, the Bible says. There's only grace. And that is why the message of Christianity can make people uniquely bold and humble at the same time. Bold, those things are never one without the other. Bold and humble at the same time. And the difference between boldness and the brashness that I, that I described just a minute ago is, is a matter of where your confidence lies. For the Christian, there's always humility because courage is based upon God confidence and not self-confidence. A self-confident person is the person who becomes brash. A God-confident person is a person who can be bold, but there's always a hint. There's always a hint. There's always a note of humility in the things they're doing. So lastly, then, let's come to a close. How do you get, how do you get the kind of boldness and courage like that? How does that happen in your life? Well, the text is clear, isn't it? It comes from being filled with the Spirit. So we're back to this theme. Look at verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and he began to speak and preach. And then down in verse 31, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit as they were just two chapters before, and they continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. Now, does this mean that before this filling, they were empty? No. Their already full cup is being filled again, and it begins to overflow in bold gospel proclamation. That's the point, see? 
But what is this feeling? What is it? What exactly is going on here? And I love the text here. Do you see that verse 13 again? It says that they noticed Peter and John, these, uncom- these uneducated common men, they saw their boldness and they were astonished. And I love this phrase, I really do. And they, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. <laughs> Isn't that neat? That was their power source, communion with Jesus. Of course, they had these men, his disciples, they, he had walked with, talked with them. He'd eaten with them and studied them, but of course not anymore. As the story goes in the Gospels, Jesus ascended into heaven, and because of that, they couldn't eat a meal with him any longer. They couldn't ask him questions anymore when they were confused about something. Jesus went up into heaven, the Bible says, but, see, here's the thing on Pentecost Sunday. Yes, it's true, Jesus went up into heaven, but in his going up into heaven, the Spirit has come down. And this is the Spirit's work, to connect you to Jesus, to create communion between you and the living Christ. See, it's true. It's true. We can no longer live side by side with him like the disciples did for the time, but the Spirit has come. And you know what that means? It means we have something better than living side by side with Jesus the way they, what, the way they did. We no longer live side by side with him. He is now living in us. That's what the, that's what the, the, you know, the truth of Christianity is, that by the Spirit he is living in us. So there's actually a deeper communion than before. Isn't that amazing? There's a deeper communion than before. I mean, do you remember the analogy I used a few weeks ago of the father and the son walking down the road, and they're walking along, and then the father bends down, and he sweeps the son up into his arms, and he, I wish I could still do this with my boys. Now I just got to grab them and, like, squeeze them as tight as I can or something, but sweeps them up into his arms, and he nuzzles them with his nose, and he speaks tender words into his ear, and the son squeezes his dad's neck, and he giggles and laughs because of his father's love, and then the father puts him back down on the ground, And they continue walking along as they were before. See, that's the difference. That's the difference, that picture, between the experience of the disciples before and after the Spirit coming. The son knew his father loved him as they walked along the road, didn't he? But when he embraced him and when he whispered in his ear, he had a better knowledge. He had a more intimate communion with his father in that brief moment. And that's the difference in the Spirit's ministry. It's why Jesus said... As startling as it is, he actually turns to his disciples and he says, it is for your good that I'm going away. It's better for you. We are going to have a better relationship with one another because I go away than if I stayed. Because in the Spirit's coming, he's going to create a deeper communion than we have right now. Isn't that amazing? How does that happen? Well, in John 16... Jesus is very clear that the Spirit's work is to take the things that he has said to us, the things that he has done, and here's the word, uh, and it's a loaded word, so let's be careful, but he says, and, and to manifest it to you, to, to, uh, to make it real to you. So when the Spirit comes, he takes things that you kind of know and he makes them so real that everything else gets drowned out. Let me say that when the Spirit really comes, when, when you see them being filled with the Spirit, what's happening is, is he's taking the things they kind of know and making those truths so real to them that everything else gets drowned out. You see it here in the text, and I just want to finish with looking at their prayer for just a minute. Um, look at how they pray. They're obviously very shaken by Peter and John's arrest. Uh, they're, they're huddled up again. Uh, Peter and John come back to them in verse 23. They find their friends uh, uh, presumably kind of hidden away again because this is kind of sparked. Uh, you know, some unrest and, some, and an outbreak of persecution against the early church or whatever the case might be, and they begin to pray. And look how they pray. This is really, really amazing. They pray, verse 24, Sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth. And so 
the very first thing they do is they remind themselves of who is in control. They quote Psalm 2. It comes to their mind. They're meditating on the scriptures. And so in that Psalm 2 quote, what Psalm 2 is teaching is, is that the opposition that they're experiencing is just the raging of the nations against God's authority, but it's all for naught. That no matter what the religious rulers plot or plan, God's purposes shall be established. All they are accomplishing in this outbreak of, of hostility towards the church is to do, verse 28, what God's hand and plan had already predestined to take place. They're drilling these truths homes to, the, to their heart. They're saying nothing's outside of God's authority and control. Nothing in our lives. There's not a single thing that we come up against that is not a part of God's plan and, and, and hand. And for us, I mean, the presidential elections that we're headed towards, whatever happens in November, guess what? It's God's will. See, that got a very, very subtle amen. Because we don't believe that. We struggle at that point, don't we? You, whatever happens, whatever happens, whatever happens in November in the United States of America in 2016 is only accomplishing what God's hand and plan had predestined to take place. Nothing is outside of his control and authority. We are in God's hands. And they start to drill this home to their heart. And watch what happens. Watch what happens. The Spirit comes. This is when the Spirit fills them. The Spirit falls upon them so that these truths become so real to them that it transforms them. It settles them. It calms them down. Radically changes their inner life. And this is what it means to be filled with the Spirit. That God's sovereignty and power becomes so real that you're not afraid anymore. That's when you're full of the Spirit. Is when His sovereignty and His power become so real that you're not afraid anymore, and when his love and his grace is so real you don't feel ashamed or guilty anymore. That the truth of the gospel becomes so real that Jesus died and was raised again, that he is seated at God's right hand and he has become the cornerstone of God's new creation. That that becomes so real that they, they what happens to them is they stop being afraid. They stop being afraid and they find courage and they turn back to the mission. Look at what they do. I love this. Down at the very end, verse... Uh, 29, they say, and now, Lord, now, Lord, look upon their threats. Don't you love that? And now, Lord, look upon their threats. In other words, they're saying, we're not going to be concerned with that anymore because we know you're concerned with that. God, look upon their threats. Can you believe what they're doing? They're raging against you. You've got all that covered. It's in your hands. We're just going to get back to what you told us to do. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. All of that's up to you now, and grant to your servants that we might continue to speak your word with boldness. You see that? Isn't that amazing? Now, where does that boldness come from? It is a work of the Spirit to bring us to a deeper experience of gospel truth, a knowing that is beyond just knowing, to seeing and tasting the sweetness of it, because the truth is you cannot speak about what you do not know. You have to have something to say. And so the Spirit comes to increase your knowledge beyond just knowledge to a tasting and a, and a seeing the sweetness of it so that you, in fact, find something that you want to tell other people about. Thomas Goodwin, the man who told the story of the father and the son walking together that I, that I used a minute ago, he said that there is a light that comes and overpowers a man's soul and assures him that God is his and he is God's and that God loves him from everlasting. It is a light beyond the light of ordinary faith. Think about that phrase. It is a light beyond the light of ordinary faith. What is the light of ordinary faith? That's the full cup. What is the light that is beyond the light of ordinary faith? That is the full cup that has been filled, that is now overflowing, and that's what we need. We need a light beyond 
the ordinary line of faith. That's what fills the already full cup, and it makes it overflow in bold witness. But here's the thing. We're caught, I mean, again, I just find myself, I find myself brought to this undeniable truth. That is what I'm just describing there is not something we can conjure, not something we can do on our own. It is a sovereign work of God's Spirit who blows where he will. It is the Spirit's work. And so, like what these young early Christians did here, we're left with the very same thing. All we can do is pray. Pray that he would blow on us, that the valley of dry bones that is our lives so often, that the Spirit would come and blow over us, that the dry bones would live, that we would find the courage and the strength that we need to be faithful in the world that God has called us to. And so all I know to do is just to lead us in a prayer that God would do just that among us. So can we pray? And then Terry's going to come and we're going to sing as we finish this morning. So Lord Jesus, we do give you thanks. For the great work that you've accomplished on our behalf, it's the reason we've come here to celebrate this morning your death in our place, your powerful resurrection from the dead, granting us life and resurrection power, your sending into heaven that the Spirit might come to give us an even deeper communion with you than was experienced by those that were eyewitnesses of the great deeds that you accomplished in your earthly ministry. Those gospel truths are so wonderful. They sometimes, they sometimes just linger on the periphery of our lives. They linger on the periphery of our hearts. We believe, but we don't believe. And so what we need is for you to do something that we can't, that we can't do. We're at your mercy. Uh, what we need so desperately is, is a work that we can't accomplish. And so all that's left for us to do is to cry out, have mercy, Lord. Have mercy look upon us in our need and our frailty in our desire to be more than we are, in our desire to live with more power and authority than we do, with more courage and boldness and love for others than we can muster in our own strength, our desire to, to have more patience with our kids, to, to be more forceful in our love towards our, our wives or our husbands. We cry out and say, oh Lord, we need for you to do a work of transforming us. And yet we bow before you because we know that it is the work of your sovereign spirit. And so we lay ourselves here before you to say, please come fill us that we might be full and overflowing because we believe that we bring honor and glory to your name. And it's for that reason that we pray these things and we appeal to you in Jesus' name, amen. It's really not a better way to sum up the words of this benediction than just that phrase, all must be well. That's what these words mean. It's the promise that that is the case. Now, as that comes home to your heart, if you, if you would stretch out your hands you know, and stretch out your heart in faith to believe that when he says all will be well, he means what he says. To the degree to which, uh, to the degree to which you really can live as if that's true, that is where, that's where the power comes from. That's where the courage comes from to know that we go from this place into a world, this is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget, right? And so we have nothing to fear. And that's what these words mean. So receive this benediction and may it make your heart bold. Uh, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.